0: Well, John chapter 8, if you would look over there, our time is abbreviated today but I, because of the Lord's table, but I wanted to take you there. We're going to be looking at section 12 through 20 on that grand statement of the light of the Lord. Let me go ahead and read. You follow along from John 8, beginning at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. had not yet come. May God bless the reading of his scripture. You recognize that as we entered into John chapter 8 last week, we're just coming off the heels of the of John chapter 7 on the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was that week-long ceremony that they had created where people would come and flock all into Jerusalem. Jerusalem actually isn't a very, very big city, but all the Jewish people would come in from all the surrounding areas from Jerusalem, and they would make these tents, and they would make these booths, and they would live in these tents and live in these booths for a week. And they did that to remember the time where God blessed them in a unique way during their 40-year wandering in the wilderness, at that feast of Tar- tabernacles you remember there were two key ceremonies that took place the Jewish people had one wonderful water ritual that they celebrated because for every day as I've mentioned to you back when Jesus said in John 7:37 if anyone thirst let him come unto me but for e- every day during the feast of tabernacles here the high priest and the people in procession would carry a golden pitcher. This golden pitcher would be filled with water from the pool of Siloam and they would come back to the temple. So you can imagine he would fill that pitcher up with water and he would take that water back into the temple. As he went through the water gate, three trumpets would blast would ring out. It marked a very joyous occasion that priest would then take the water in he would pour it if you will through a funnel which led to the base of the altar of burnt offering then with the cl- the crowds would be gathered around him priest would walk around the altar with the water container while the temple choir was singing the hallel they called it it was the hallel just means hallelujah they were psalms psalms 113 through 118 they were hymns of praise and we believe that it was at that very moment when they poured the, when that priest would pour the water out at the base of that altar, that Jesus would have then on the last day stood up. Look at verse 37 of chapter 7 that he would have said, at that time, at that place, on the last day of the feast, the great day, he stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Our Lord there was inviting thirsty souls to come to him for spiritual life for sustaining water that brings eternal life. And here as they were remembering that God brought the water from the rock, that was what that celebrated, Jesus stands and declares himself to not only be the provision of water, but the provider of the water. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 10:4 that he is the rock where that water came out. So you can imagine even what that statement meant on that last day, the great day of the feast, as they poured the water out, that he himself said, I am the living water. That water that was brought from the pool of Siloam was only a symbol of the greater reality of salvation brought by Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in essence, is, in essence is saying there at that feast, do you not realize this, that this water Points to me that the source of joy, the source of life comes from me. And so he bid the people when he was preaching there at the temple to come to me, the one who forgives sin, the one who pardons sins, the one who can give you eternal life. But he did say, Come to me. He didn't say, Come to a church service. He didn't say, Come to a ceremony. He said, Come to me. Salvation is a person, he is the bread of heaven, he is the living water. He declared there that he is our hope, our only hope, and come to me. So really, as we look back in that first great ritual, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that that feast had anticipated. And as Israel drank from the life-giving spring from the rock, so now Christ, here in this text, is the ever-flowing, never-failing, soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching supply of living water. And so that was what that metaphor illustrated there, and he demonstrated that to portray the ultimate truth of himself as Messiah, who fulfills all that the feast had anticipated. He then will turn now in John chapter eight to another rite that traditionally occurred at the feast of Tabernacles. It was the the lighting ceremony; they called it. It was a ceremony of lights. So you can now, as you begin to approach the text, begin just a little bit when Jesus again spoke to them saying that I am the light of the world. I would say to us this morning, it is an absolute startling claim. Now, when you look at that phrase there, I am the light of the world, it is, of course, one of the seven great I am statements in John's gospel. It is the second I am statement that we are looking at. Look back in John chapter 6 just a touch and remind you of the first I am statement. In John chapter 6, remember Jesus said, this is why, or excuse me, in 635, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There he made that incredible declaration that he is the bread of life, that he is the one that would give the life sustaining bread, that the one who comes to him, the one who appropriates him by faith here will never hunger. Whoever believes in him will never thirst. That was the first I am statement. And so we come to the second one this morning. And before we look at what that phrase means, I am the light of the world, I thought it might be helpful just a moment to understand what is in the word light. I mean, even as Jesus said, I am the light of the world, there is just a rich biblical imagery all throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament on even what Dom read this morning, the fact that God is light. In fact, it said, I remind you in 1 John 1 5, where John the Apostle, this same writer, said there that this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And you know the phrase. And in him there is no, what? Darkness at all. So very well, right there at the beginning, John the Apostle writing in 1 John proclaimed that God is indeed light. Now, you know that sometimes in Scripture... It makes statements regarding the character of God. You know that it says in 1 John 4.8 that God is love. It's a statement of who he is. We know from John 4.24 that God is spirit. The, there are ways that describe the character of God. Well, very well here in 1 John 1, 1.5, and we'll see what Christ meant by that. God is light. It is the immaterial aspect of God. In other words, when the statement in Scripture says that God is light, it is describing the essence of God. It is describing the being of God. It is a statement on God's character. God profoundly, in the Old Testament, is a God of light. And as soon as we say that, as one writer said, we begin to enter into a world of imagery. In fact, you remember, do you not, beloved, in the Old Testament, that God's glory that when you think of the glory of God, it's one of my favorite subjects in the Old Testament. His glory was often cast in the demonstration of a powerful light. In fact, in the wilderness when they were wandering, if you will, that glory of God was demonstrated in a bright light and that light demonstrated God's presence. But even if you back up from there, you recognize in Genesis 1-1 that God is the creator of light. God said, let there be light and there was light. And so God is described in the Old Testament as a God of glory. He's a God of light. In fact, in Exodus thirteen twenty one, the Lord was going before them. You remember statements like this. In a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on their way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. In other words, what you have there in the Old Testament is a demonstration of the very presence of God, and he was revealing himself. He does not have flesh and blood, if you will, but he is is a spirit, John 4, 24, but he would often reveal himself. And here, when he took that nation away from Egypt, he was leading them by a pillar of cloud to lead them on the way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light. You say, well, what was it? It was a physical manifestation of the person and the character of God. As that cloud moved, they moved. As the night descended upon them, the pillar of fire appeared, and God was disclosing himself that he was an ever-present reality if you will with his people. In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 104 verse 1, "O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with lights." And so you have this imagery in the scripture of how God would present himself. But just for a moment, what does the metaphor of God being light convey? What does it convey? Obviously, it recognizes his presence. But in the scripture and throughout the scripture, light, just a few things for you on that, is a metaphor for life. It is, number one, a metaphor for life. To affirm that God is light is to affirm that he is the source of life. That namely, he's the source of it and the sustainer both of spiritual life as well as physical life. That he's the one that gives to all today life and breath. But he is the source and the sustainer of spiritual life as well. In fact, look back just a few chapters in John chapter 1. Do you remember this? In John chapter 1, when he was describing the character of God, John the Apostle says there, speaking of the person of Christ in 1-2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life, here it is, was the light of men." The point being that is God as light is the source of all life and he gives eternal life to those who put their trust in him. So light, number one, is a metaphor for life. But secondly, in the scripture throughout Old and New Testament, light is a metaphor for truth, for truth. And I think this will come up on the screen and certainly you know this scripture in Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a what? A light unto my path. So that when you see light in the scripture, it is grabbing and grasping and teaching that God is the source of life. But secondly here, that his light is the source of truth. That the word of God becomes a lamp, if you will to your feet and a light unto your path. And so the light in the scripture is a metaphor for truth. In 2 Peter 1.19, there the apostle Peter said, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. And there it again, the Word of God, that prophetic Word, is a lamp, if you will, shining in a dark place. And so in the Scripture, it's a metaphor for life. It's a metaphor for truth. Thirdly, though, light in the Scripture is a metaphor for holiness. Whenever you see the fact that God is light, it is describing His utter and absolute holiness. That when it says that God is light, It is describing that God is free from all defects, that he is utterly holy, that he is perfectly pure, if you will, and that as his children, we are to walk in the light. And when it tells us to walk in the light, it is just another metaphor to say that we are to walk in holiness. So beloved, light is a metaphor for truth. It's a metaphor for life. It's a metaphor for holiness. And it always stands in the scripture in contrast to darkness. Does light, in contrast to error, in contrast to imperfection. And darkness, of course, in the scripture speaks of misery. It speaks of death. It speaks of gloom. It speaks of sin. It speaks of intellectual darkness. It speaks of moral darkness. Everything that God is, that he is in his being, the world is its opposite without the person of Christ. In fact, it's interesting that light is often pitted right next to the theme of darkness. And there is a battle in the scripture between light, who is God, and through the world that is bound up by darkness. You have statements like this, Romans thirteen twelve. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Let us cast off or lay aside the deeds of darkness... And put on the armor of light. In other words, if you're a believer, he's just saying he's using that metaphor there to lay aside, and he calls that prior lifestyle, the the deeds, and he calls them deeds of darkness. And then our admonition is to put on the armor of life. You remember it says in Ephesians 5, 8, 9, that you were formerly, or you were at this time, darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The ideal is walk in holiness. Walk after the character of God. God's character is light. And you now in Christ are to walk as children of light. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, where he tells us there to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And then this, what fellowship has light with darkness? These are often pitted against each other. In other words, as children of light, we're not to follow the deeds of darkness. We're to not have fellowship in that sense with people who do not claim Christ as Lord. doesn't mean we don't have friendship, but he's talking about an intimate fellowship there. And certainly some people have used this for dating and for relationships that way, or business, what fellowship has light with darkness. First Thessalonians five for you all, speaking to those Thessalonian believers, are children of light, children of the day, and we are not of the night or of the darkness. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. This world in which we live is a present darkness. In fact, you remember some of you that many years ago, a man, was his name Frank Peretti? Is that his name? I still remember. Wrote that book, This Present Darkness, and he captured that from Ephesians 6.12. And so here's that theme of darkness set against that theme of light. Look back just for a moment to John chapter 3. Let me show you this there. And I'm leading this back to our passage. But in John chapter 3 in verse 19 where even John the writer, do you remember that? In 319, this is the judgment that light, speaking of Christ, has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true, here's what a believer is, comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so you see this picture in the scripture, this contrast that God is light. That as he comes in, he grants salvation to us. In fact, when you look at the theme of darkness, that is a theme in the scripture of judgment. In fact, in Matthew 22, 13, there in that parable, the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer, what? Darkness. If there's any description of hell, it is a description of being away from the light, away from the holiness of God, away from the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a place of absolute outer darkness. And in that place, Matthew says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the writers go on to describe the nature of our salvation. Paul said in Colossians 1.13 that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his Son. So what that's saying, Grace Church of the Valley, is that when you came to Jesus Christ, he pulled you out of the domain of darkness in which you once lived and placed you into the kingdom of his Son. In fact, Paul describing salvation in Acts 26, 18 says to open their eyes that they may turn, he used that phrase, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. And so, beloved, it's in the midst of the world's darkness that our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, declares himself to be, think about it, the light of the world. It is a marvelous statement. So you say, how can we begin to understand this text from John 8, 12 down through verse 20? What I want to do, both this week and next week, is look at this passage through three challenges that reveal Jesus as the light of the world and our response to him, okay? Three challenges that reveal Jesus as the light of the world and our response to him. I want to look first... At the Lord's claim, then next week we'll look at the leader's challenge and then the Lord's comeback. He makes a claim, they then challenge his claim, and then he makes a profound comeback. But let's look for our time this morning at the Lord's claim. You can see it there in 8.12 that he said that I am the light of the world and what a wonderful claim it is. But our Lord's claim, again, is packed full of meaning, even going back to the Old Testament. What was he saying there? I am the light of the world. I think we just take that as the second of the great I am statements, and rightfully so. But there's an entire context here of what he means when he makes that claim. Well, you go back to the Old Testament. Do you remember, Grace Church of the Valley, that when Isaiah was talking about the coming Messiah, back when Isaiah penned scripture. He was talking about the servant of the Lord, and Isaiah declares that the servant of the Lord was appointed to be a light to the Gentiles that he might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I'm always reminded of that because he wasn't just a light to the nation of Israel, that there was a coming Messiah that would be a light to the Gentiles for this purpose, that God's salvation would extend, if you will, all the way to the ends of the earth. So here's the statements, like in Isaiah 42, 6, where he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. And there it is, as a light for the nations. In other words, he was gonna raise up Israel He was going to make them a light to the nations. And he was particularly talking about that Messiah that would come. In Isaiah 49, 6, there the writer said, God, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So you have all the way back in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah describing the coming Messiah, describing the role of the nation to be a light to the nations. What's interesting about this phrase, the ideal of light, you could even project that light into the future, into our eschatology at the end times where the servant of the Lord will be a light. It says this in Isaiah 60, and it's looking forward to the future here, that the sun shall be no more your light by day, for the brightness shall the moon give you light. It says nor for the brightness, but the Lord, it says there will be your everlasting light and will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, or the Lord will be, it says there, or the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. So again, as you move into the millennial kingdom and into the, 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 the ideal of heaven and the scene of heaven, the Lord's going to be the light there. Revelation twenty one twenty three: the city has no need for the sun, no need for the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the, who? The lamb. And then it says in 21, 24, by its light will the nations walk. Beloved, I hope you can just begin to see just for a moment when he, maybe right after that festival was over, declared that he is the light of the world. And again, as you look again at the claim, look at it again. He didn't say, I am a light of the world. No, he said, I am the light. He didn't say, I am the light in Jerusalem, but I am the light of the world. And so Jesus isn't just a mere light among lights. Look back in John chapter one in verse nine. Let me just trace this for a second with you. And then I wanna bring you to why I believe he said this. But in John chapter one in verse nine, there it says the true light is, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world that would be the Lord Jesus Christ, look back at one four we 've read that earlier in him was life, and the life there's our word was the light of men, and then you have all these statements in the scripture when it says in luke two thirty two that Jesus Christ at his birth Quoting Isaiah was a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people. At the birth when Jesus was born, Simeon celebrated his coming and declared that Jesus Christ was a light of revelation. And so Jesus here declares he is the light of the world. Look over in John chapter 9 for a moment. In John chapter 9, Jesus said this. You can see it's not just this one place. But he says in John chapter 9 and verse 5, he said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That is a description of him. Look over at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. You have these wonderful statements in the scripture. In John chapter 12 in verse 35, there it says this. Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. There was an urgency to his message, was there not? That while he was in the world, he was the light of the world. Look down at John chapter 12 and look over at verse 46 where Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. So Jesus, beloved, makes this radical, bold claim and declaration that I am the light of the world. In other words, he, if you will, dispels darkness. He dispels, if you will, sin, ignorance, impurity, sorrow, and death. But you might ask the question, though, as as I was, I was getting a grasp on this text. Why does he still say that? I mean, what's what's behind that? Why did he actually just say, maybe it's the Feast of Tabernacles, maybe it's the next day, we presume, okay? And he actually just comes out. Have you ever wondered that and said, I am the light of the world? Well, I mentioned there were two rituals that they celebrated, right? One of them was the water ritual where they would carry that golden pitcher and then bring it back in procession and the priest and then he'd walk around the altar seven times and he would pour that water out onto that burnt offering as they remembered the rock and the water that came out of it. But there was a, there was a second ritual that they celebrated in the Feast of Tabernacles. Picture this. During, or, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they put in... What some people call the court of women, but here I'll take you to the text. Look back in John chapter 8:20. It says there, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. as he declared himself to be the light of the world, he was speaking these words, it says there, in the treasury. Now, the treasury was also known as the place of the court of women. But what they would do for this week-long celebration is they had these candelabras. And I don't want you to picture a small candelabra. They had four massive candelabras that they put in the treasury, that they put in the court of the women. These candelabras were 86 feet high. And then extending down these candelabras were these branches, if you will. And on these branches, obviously it was constructed, there would be thousands of other lights that would come down from these four candelabras there that was in the treasury or in the court of women. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light those in the evening and they would burn all night. And if you can just imagine being in Jerusalem during the Feast of Celebration, Feast of Tabernacles, it was a massive celebration. It was the greatest celebration. It was a celebration of joy. And then in the evening, these candelabras would just light up all of Jerusalem. It was almost like the festival of lights. In fact, they called this the illumination of the temple. I was at Disneyland, sorry for this, few, I don't know, weeks ago, and they had the festival of lights. And there's just floats that come down. But imagine being a Jewish person. Imagine celebrating their history. Imagine celebrating that God is light, that he was leading them by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And so when they put these candelabras out, They were not only remembering the rock that brought the water, they were remembering the light that led them in the wilderness. And they celebrated God's light for 40 years in the wilderness, that pillar that led them. And to remember this, they lit these candles. In fact, there are some historians that say that the the temple grounds, if you were, were like, quote, a flashing diamond. It was just all lit up with all these candles. In fact, some historians believe that when people came back to the court of women, back into the treasury, that they too were carrying candles of their own. And so it just lit up Jerusalem. And it was a festive time. There was dancing, Jewish dancing that took place. And often some of the Jewish leaders would lead in these and dancing. So listen, I'm, I'm just saying that at some point, whether he did it that night or whether he closed out that week and maybe they were taking the things down, Jesus declared himself to be, I am the light of the world. That's the context in which it comes. It's the context where they were remembering what God did and he profoundly says, I am the light of the world. In other words, the pillar of fire and cloud by day, Jesus says, was my light. I am the light that will lead you to life. I am the light that will lead you to God. I am the light that will lead you to heaven, is what he's saying. GCV, this is a direct messianic claim. Jesus Christ is declaring in unmistakable terms that I am the Messiah, that I am the promised one, that I am the promised prophet that would come. I am the light of the world. In fact, what he's saying is just as God displayed this marvelous light in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is now declaring himself to be the light of the world. And as the light would illuminate the temple and the people would gather to sing and to dance and to praise God, Jesus took the opportunity to portray another spiritual analogy for the people and said, I am the light of the world. Listen, beloved, this is a bold claim. It came with great precision, great authority. Jesus, in unmistakable terms, was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be the light of the world. He came to identify himself as God. He basically says, I am the light of the Old Testament. He's telling the people, I protected you. I am the one who guided you. I came into the temple and I filled it with glory. My presence was there. God is light. And now Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The equation is this, that Jesus is God. In fact, we haven't even spoke on this. You know this when he says, I am the bread of life, one. And he says, secondly, here, I am the light of the world. He is using the exact Greek phrasing of the great declaration of God in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter three, when Moses said, who will I tell him that sent me? And remember, Moses, God said there to Moses, you tell him the I am sent you. In other words, here is another statement where Jesus is declaring himself to be one with God regarding his identity. I can't say it this way clear enough. This is a divine disclosure. He is claiming that he himself is God. In fact, the significance about the use of I am, it is the same phrasing in the Old Testament. The Greek here on the I am statement is simply ego, a me. I am that I am. And Jesus is identifying himself as God. There is no other way around it. Some people ask or some people say, do they ask you? Why doesn't Jesus come right out and say, I am God? Why does he use metaphors? Why does he use illusions when it comes to disclosing his identity? Well, the truth is, beloved, it can't get any clearer than this. This. John's purpose in writing this gospel is to help us see that Jesus is God. To help us see that Jesus is the Son of God. You remember the statement in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. This is a bold statement. In fact, let me just enter into your life for a moment. This is the greatest statement that could ever be made in the community in which we live. The greatest thing that anybody could ever hear is that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The greatest statement that could ever be made is that only he is the one that can give eternal salvation and eternal life. That in the midst of the darkness he comes and I want to push on you a little bit. It's not enough that you have it. Who are you giving it to? Who's still on your heart? Some of you have led people to Christ and there's people in our church whom you've led to Christ. But listen, do you got somebody else? This is the greatest message. We live in a dark world. We live in some dark times. And if you think it's going to get lighter, it's probably going to get darker. And in the midst of the darkness, he's still preaching this message. He is the only hope for the world. Psychology is not going to help anybody. Only Christ can help somebody. Only Christ can change a life. Only Christ can take you from darkness into his light and into his kingdom. And so this I am statement points to his deity. It points to a saving relationship that he gives to the world. Beloved, you agree with me? There is no other light. There is no other alternative. It is Jesus or it is darkness. And so he says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are what? The light of the world. And you've got to open your mouth and I've got to open my mouth and we've got to declare this gracious good news to people. There is no other option. The entire world needs the light of Jesus Christ. There is no other light. There is no other hope. There is no other salvation. There is no other aspect of light and life and truth and holiness. He is the light of the world. Now, it doesn't mean, beloved, that Everyone is saved, you know, from John's gospel, that though he comes to give light to the world, you must place your faith in him. Listen, we have, we just sung it, a wonderful, merciful, what? Savior. This is a bold statement. This is as bold as it can be. In fact, they knew exactly what he was saying because then later you're going to find out that they were seeking to kill him. They knew exactly what he was offering, exactly what he was saying. But listen, I'm saying to my own heart, to your heart, if you've been transferred from darkness to light, you can't keep that to yourself. You can't look back and remember your friend 15 years ago from this school and not have a heart from him, even though he has nothing to do from the Lord. You can't look back on people that you were in grade school with and realize they've walked from the Lord and not feel responsibility to him because the further people get away from Christ, the more they go into darkness, right? And so we have the opportunity to share this good news because of who he is. Would you look down just at verse 20, just before we go to the Lord's table? Did did you see that there in John chapter 8? I I highlighted it before, that he's in the treasury as he taught in the temple. You say, what's the treasury? Well, the, the treasury... It's not a building. The, the, the treasury was a place. And it was a place where there were uh, these, in Jewish words, shofars. If you can imagine, even the building we're in, they had these 13-shaped receptacles. And the treasury was also identified as the place of the court of women. So they would have at the temple a place of the court of Gentiles. Then they had another place called the Court of Women, and that was where the women could enter. It was the most popular place. It was where those candle candelabras were. It was where these 13-shaped uh, receptacles were, if you will. They were trumpet-shaped, and, and it was the place. You say, what would they do? It was in those receptacles that people would come into the temple and make an offering. And they would use these receptacles to collect the money. They'd put one in and some of them paid for the temple tax. Some you can come in and put money and you would pay for the pigeons to go make your offering. In some of the receptacles, there was a deposit there that you could buy wood to purchase for the altar. And then they had other things that you can give to, just general giving. But the thing that amazes me, look at verse 20. It says, but no one arrested him because why? His hour had not come. His hour, as we've looked many times before, was the precious cross. He was in control of that timetable. In fact, look back at John chapter 7. Just There's many of them. But in John seven thirty, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not come. Here he's teaching, he's declaring himself to be the living water earlier. Now he's declaring himself to be the light of the world. And it said that no one arrested him because his hour had not come. It was the hour of the cross. You know what amazes me is that the very one who said, I'm the living water, the very one who says, if you drink from this well, you will never be thirsty again. The one who says, I am the light of the world, that he who believes in me will never suffer eternal death, but will have the light of life that that very one who made those two bold declarations is the one who died for you. God himself entered into this world at the incarnation in John chapter 1, that the word was with God, that the word was God. And in John 1.14, the word became what? Flesh. And he came to die for you. This is is why this is true. Who can make this stuff up? What what man is going to write this and say you can't do it yourself? You've got to depend upon one who came, who came and then was the epitome of holiness, was the epitome of perfection, that he never sinned, that he's without spot, that he's without wrinkle, that he had no sin, and he offers himself up on the cross for. You it ought to just lead us to wonder, right? Amazement is what I mean to say. To worship is what it leads us to. Beloved, I just say this is the only hope. You say, Why do you say that? Look down in the text at 824. Jesus said, and let who's who's on your heart to witness to? I told you, Jesus is speaking in 824, that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Beloved, he's not one option. He's not one of many options. He is the only option. This is God's beloved son. And in a world of darkness shines the glorious light of Christ. He comes into a world of sin. He comes into a world of death. He comes into a world of suffering, into a world of misery, into a world of evil. And he offers us his life. He dies in your place. The light of the world willingly gave himself for your sins. He dies as your substitution. You know, it's interesting. I I don't want to make more of this. But it's in the treasury, in the court of women, where people would come bring their gifts. The greatest gift of the world was there. The greatest gift that he would give of his own life in six months later at the Passover. This is right after the Feast of Tabernacles. This is in the fall of 32. In just six months, he was on his way to the cross. But they couldn't arrest him because his hour had not come. But he went there to offer himself for you. We sang it earlier, but it's a great, great stanza on And Can It Be. Wesley said this, think about it. He said, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. He said, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with what? Light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and what? Followed thee. Is that your testimony? Have you come to the light of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is who he is. He's the living water. He's the bread of life. He is the light of the world. And John wrote this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that believing you may have life in his name. Amen.